Good morning. Um, as part of uh, our worship, for those who aren't familiar yet, we have our church covenant with Mormon Baptist Church, and we have 15 ideals or points based on the scripture, of course, where we are reminded of our role as members or believers here at, at Beaumont Baptist Church. It looks like this. Mine has a couple of hearts. I wonder why. But you can get one uh, by the red table on the side there if you still have, don't have one. Um, today, uh, we are reminded uh, with the ideal number seven, which says, I will be slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. This reminds us uh, how easy it is to get this uh, uh, totally backwards. Our nature, my flesh, usually practices or reads like this. I will be quick to take offense and slow to seek a reconciliation. It's part of our pride and our nature. Last Sunday, having the privilege to teach in our Sunday school, and I hope some kids might still remember the lesson, <laughs> we saw the passage of the speck and the log in Matthew 7, 3 through 5. And it says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, by, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So in fact, we are very quick to point out our neighbors' neighbors' faults or sins very quick, but if this doesn't does not bring reconciliation, then it will just cause division among us. So the truth of the matter is that we have two different scenarios where either one we commit an offense, or number two, an offense is committed against us. However, in both cases, the Bible teaches us uh, to seek for re reconciliation. And that reconciliation could be with each other. And as we see in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And also, the second uh, way to look for reconciliation and interestingly, is the, is the very first sentence in our church covenant. And it says, the gospel of Jesus Christ has restored me to God and given me new life. So that restoration, that reconciliation is with God, our Father, through Christ. As we see in Second Corinthians five, uh, chapter 5, Verse 17 to 20, 21 says, <clears throat> Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ 
reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So that's the importance that we have to recon reconcile with each other quickly. But above all things, we have to seek for that reconciliation with God, our Father. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, for your kindness, for your grace, for the forgiveness. And this is the tool that you have provided to us to get reconciled. One is with each other and the other one is with you, our Father, through the sacrifice of your Son, uh, Jesus Christ. We are grateful for your Son who gave us life, eternal life, gave us salvation. And through him, as the verse we were reading together, we are a new creation, ambassadors for him. Help us to use this powerful tool of forgiveness. Sometimes we feel afraid. Sometimes the enemy uh, uses this fear against us and it slows us down. But the Bible teaches us the opposite. We have to seek for reconciliation quickly. Help us to take the initiative as well. Help us to seek for this reconciliation with our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, even within our own families, relatives. Sometimes we hold things back for years. And above all things, help us to seek for this re re reconciliation with you, our Father, putting on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Rodrigo. Um, at this time, if you're unaware, each Sunday we offer a fully staffed nursery and a kids class. So the kids class is just in the back of the larger room here. Kids, you're welcome to head off uh, to your class at this time. And uh, parents, the nursery is just over in the room right off to the corner here. It's fully staffed every Sunday. Uh, you're more than welcome to make use of that <coughs> if you would like. All right, well, I would invite you at this time to join me in Mark's Gospel, uh, the 10th chapter, and we'll be considering verses 1 to 12 together this morning. Uh, I think we live in a world where everything is disposable. <clears throat> uh, we were having a couple with or, or coffee with a neighbor couple a little while back. They're now well into their 90s. And he had recently brought her a pair of his old socks and asked her if she would darn them for him. And after decades of darning his socks, she finally said to him, Oh, honey, it's not worth it anymore. We'll just go to Walmart and we'll buy you a whole new pack. Throw those old socks out. 
Of course, these are the joys of modern manufacturing and affluence. I mean, consider what it's like to shop at, on Amazon. You could put an item in your cart, a tool or a garment of clothing or something like that, and you can say to yourself, you know what, I, I, I'm not sure this is a really high-quality item, but the price is so cheap that if I buy it and it breaks and I have to buy another one, it's fine. Not a big deal. We have disposable plates, cups, tools, clothes, diapers, you name it, except for bags. Somehow those are absolutely the worst. But everything else, disposable. And sadly, one of the items we could add to our list of of disposables is marriage. Uh, In our society, we say, ah, (laughs) marriage, it's not that important. You don't need to get married in the first place. Or you know what? If your marriage isn't working for you, Just get rid of it. Go get a new one. No big deal. People view their marriages as disposable. I think people, generally speaking, do not have a high view of marriage, but rather a low view. And of course, this is nothing new. Uh, It was true in Jesus' day too. In in Mark 10, 1 to 12, we see that Jesus has a very, very high view of marriage. He's slowly been making his way to Jerusalem where he will ultimately give his life on the cross. And he's been teaching his disciples what it means uh, to die to self and to follow him. And we're in a section in Mark that is essentially all about discipleship. And Jesus now, here again, finds himself in front of a crowd. And this time he's teaching a lesson, namely that discipleship or following Jesus always hits home. Because God intends for your marriage to be lifelong, you need to commit to that. And I want to invite you to follow along as I read in Mark, beginning in chapter 10, verse 1, down through verse 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Uh, This is actually one of many Bible passages that address the subject matter of divorce and remarriage. Uh, And this passage actually seems to be addressing the main principle or the main rule, you might say, without getting into whether or not there are any exceptions to that rule. If we were to look at all the Bible passages on this subject matter, I believe that in summary we'd find that God does make allowance for divorce and remarriage where there has been adultery or where a non-Christian spouse would like to divorce. But this passage, interestingly enough, doesn't address any of that. Why or why not? And my guess would be this. To drive home the big idea that God forbids divorce 
and remarriage. And sometimes we can get so preoccupied uh, wrestling through the legitimate exceptions to the rule that are brought up in other passages that the main idea or the main rule, so to speak, almost gets blunted and loses its force. We are quick to focus on the footnotes and miss actually the main text. And here Jesus just takes the overarching principle, the big idea, and drives it home. And we want to make sure we capture that. So we're going to take note this morning of three ways to follow Jesus in your home. First of all, watch out for society's perspective on your marriage. Uh, Verses 1 to 5 give us a sense of the state of marriage in Jesus' day, and frankly, things have not changed much at all. Breaking your marriage is a pervasive practice, and this reality bubbles uh, forth to the surface in, in the first five verses. The details of these verses demonstrate that Jesus was ministering in a time when the landscape was just strewn with broken marriages. Divorce was common, relatively acceptable, and viewed, no doubt, by many as a right. I mean, does that sound familiar to our day and age? I think it does. We're reminded of just how pervasive divorce was from the location of Jesus. If you look back at verse 1, it says, And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Now, that little geographic reference, we might pass over it pretty quickly. But it actually places Jesus back in the political jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, who had divorced his own wife and taken a new wife by the name of Herodias, who had also left her husband for that union. And Mark chapter 6, verses 17 to 19 records that John the Baptist actually spoke up about this. He spoke about the unlawful nature of Herod's union with Herodias. And John the Baptist lost his head. We're further reminded of just how pervasive divorce was in Jesus' day from the nature of the Pharisees' question. If you look at verse 2, we read, And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Uh, That question is just loaded with evil intent on the part of the Pharisees. And perhaps their intent was to get Jesus killed. And I say that because back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, We read several weeks ago that the Pharisees went out and they began to plot with another group of people, the Herodians, how they might kill Jesus. If they get Jesus talking like John the Baptist talked about marriage and divorce and remarriage and Herod's own relationship with Herodias, he might meet the same fate as John the Baptist did. Um, Perhaps the intent as well was to bring Jesus into contradiction with the Mosaic Law. Let's throw the Mosaic Law in front of Jesus and and some tension points in its interpretation, and let's see what happens. And with that, perhaps to alienate Jesus from the crowd, divorce and remarriage are certainly sensitive matters. They have been forever. Forever. If Jesus starts speaking too dogmatically, the crowd could easily turn against him. And again, for many people then, as today, divorce is often viewed as as a human right. And it's super sensitive. Divorce is a right. Don't touch my rights. Its pervasiveness is seen further by the debate that was going on at the time about the law of Moses. Look at verses 2 and 4 again. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In verse 3, Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? So he's pointing back to the Pentateuch. 
And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Uh, The Pharisees are referencing a very specific passage from the Old Testament law. They're referencing Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. That's the passage they're saying that, well, Moses allowed uh, for a man to write his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. But to say that that particular passage commands, encourages, condones, authorizes, or sanctions divorce would would be way too strong of a way to describe that Old Testament passage. We might say, rather, that the Old Testament law tolerated divorce in certain circumstances, implying that divorce was never and has never been inherently right or good. And more than anything, that piece of legislation in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 regulated divorce by making it a requirement that a man, uh, if, this, if a marriage was breaking apart and he was leaving her, requiring that he put a legal document in her hand and it forbid him from marrying her again were she ever to remarry someone else after their marriage broke up. Uh, it seems like in many ways that piece of legislation was meant to curb hasty action and also to help protect the woman's future. Under the Mosaic law, God did not approve or command divorce, but merely tolerated and regulated a sinful situation. But based on this passage, the Pharisees responded to Jesus in verse 4, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. To shed more light on this situation, in Jesus' day, there was quite a significant debate between two rabbis about Deuteronomy 24 about what constituted lawful grounds for divorce. And there was the school of Shammai, and Shammai essentially said that the only grounds for divorce from Deuteronomy 24 was immorality, like if, if there was adultery or something of that nature. And then there was Hillel, the school of Hillel, and he said that you could divorce your wife for pretty much whatever you wanted. You know, like she burns your toast. Or you find someone more attractive than her, you can send her away. Just make sure you give her a bill of divorce. And it seems to be that this more liberal view uh, was more prevalent in Jesus' day. And so here we have the Pharisees, and their question, as simple as it may seem, is actually a massive setup, just loaded with evil intent. But I think what we would note thus far from the Deuteronomy 24 conversation is that Deuteronomy 24 demonstrates that breaking your marriage is a destructive practice. Deuteronomy 24, I would say, it's essentially a damage control, damage control legislation. Whenever a marriage breaks apart, it's destructive. And I know there are many of you sitting here and you have personally experienced the pain of that and the destruction of that firsthand, whether that's been in your own marriage or your parents' marriage, and that destruction is real. Breaking your marriage is a sinful practice. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Why does a passage like the one in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 exist? Why did God feel the need to regulate divorce? Jesus' answer here, very simply, he says, because of your hardness of heart. That phrase is often used elsewhere in Scripture in the context of idolatry and idol worship type of settings. And so I think we should ask this question, why do marriages break apart? 
And even if we just uh, went back on the timeline a little bit, and not even all the way to the end of the road when a marriage breaks apart, but we just asked, why would any marriage ever have problems and struggles and conflict and tension? Why do marriages break apart? Why do marriages have trouble? Is it because couples are incompatible? Or they were compatible and now they're no longer compatible? Or is it because, you know, they married too young? Or because there were too many pressures? Or because they changed? And God says, no. It's always, 100% of the time, a worship issue. Divorce happens and conflict in marriage happens because sinful people or a sinful person rebels against God and selfishly enthrones himself, herself, or themselves as the object of their own worship. What destroys marriages is rebellion against God and the elevation of self, the idolatry of self. And Jesus here calls it hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness is the And anytime there's problems in any marriage, even healthy marriages, anytime there are problems, that's what it's coming back to. We actually have a medical term that's derived from the Greek word that's used here, and it's it's a medical condition referred to as cardiosclerosis, where if I understand it correctly, and I'm certainly no doctor or physician, but the soft uh, tissue of the walls of the heart thickens and becomes hard. And Jesus is here speaking about a spiritual condition that, that reflects that type of thing in many ways. It's a spiritual matter. It's a heart matter. Because God intends for your marriage to be lifelong, you need to watch out for society's perspective on your marriage. Jesus is countering that here and saying, you know, what the common view out there is not the right one. And so how you think about all this matters. Are you failing or falling into thinking patterns about your marriage that reflect society, not scripture? And I think every single one of us can do this. this. Even if you're in a very, very healthy marriage, you just start thinking the wrong way. You have to make sure you're feeding God's truth to yourself. And you have to make sure that you're looking at marriage through the lens of scripture. Before we turn our attention, though, to the next point, maybe I could just say a few personal and pastoral words. Uh, My own parents divorced when I was in grade six, and honestly, that was terrible. Uh, Both of their parents, uh, both sets of my grandparents have divorces in their past, and those were likewise painful and messy. Uh, So as I stand up and, and mention my story a little bit, I'm not telling you an obscure story that represents some kind of anomaly out there. So many of you could tell the same stories. Uh, Anyone here who has personally been divorced or you've in some way, shape, or form been a victim of divorce, uh, you know how destructive and painful it is. And maybe you would do anything to go back and do some things differently or whatever the case may be. Um, Also, I'd say if your marriage is struggling or seems to be falling apart right now, I'd also just put this idea before you that there are many people sitting right here right now who understand. I think there's this common thing in church life where everybody walks in the doors and we have this formal worship gathering where everything mostly looks good in all of our lives for two hours. Um, And yet that's just not the case, right? And I just encourage you, don't think for a moment that you sit among those who are looking down on you or who don't have their own very humbling stories to share of God's grace in their lives. And even if you sit here and you have 
what might be an unbiblical divorce in your past, I think we come to God's word and we are reminded that the gospel always has us moving forward. We are people who, by the grace of God, forget those things that are behind. We, we biblically take what's in the past and we process it and we navigate it God's way and then we press forward. There is nothing genuinely confessed to the God of heaven that the blood of Jesus Christ will not cover. And so I want to encourage you to lay hold of that. Uh, Satan would love for you to just be racked by the guilt of the past and you want to take all that. If there's been sin in your past and you have to take that to the cross and make that right with God, make that right with whoever you need to make it right with. But the Christian life is a forward-moving life. We are forward-moving people. And if I can help you in any way uh, to do that, I'd be happy to. And I hope you also know that you're welcome here and not viewed as second class. Uh, You may even be here today and you're on your second marriage or perhaps a third. And God loves you. He loves your spouse. God loves your marriage and he wants it to thrive. And I think we want to remember that. And that brings us to a second way to follow Jesus in your home. And that is to embrace God's plan for your marriage. God does have a plan for your marriage and it's good. Look at verses 5 and 6. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Obviously, Deuteronomy 24 was never God's intent for anyone's marriage. Uh, God's plan for your marriage is so much better. And that's where Jesus turns our attention next. What is God's blueprint for marriage? And what Jesus is going to do, he's going to take us back to God's plan actually from the very beginning of creation. He's going to take us back to a time where there was no sin in the world. Before there was ever hardness of heart. When I was in school, I took a marriage and family counseling class at one point, And my professor said that uh, when he sat a couple down, he really liked to uh, dump a puzzle out on the desk or on the table Uh, before they arrived or something like that. And at some point, once they got into conversation and started talking, he would ask them to start uh, putting the puzzle together, in his words, without the blueprint or without the box cover. And then he would uh, basically be doing that to illustrate that it's the same problem in marriage, that, that their marriage is a mess, just like the puzzle, and they need God's blueprint, the Bible, to put it together. And it's so true. What happens so many times is we're trying to put our marriages together. We're trying to make them work in everyday life. And we're just doing whatever we think might work or whatever we want to do at the time. And that may or may not be Bible. And God takes us back to his blueprint. He says, I actually have a really good plan. You should look at it and you should do it. It's good. In verses 6 to 9, Jesus reminds everyone of four marriage realities from the garden. The blueprint from the beginning of time. God made marriage and it's good. And if you want to embrace God's plan and blueprint for your marriage, then you need to know what these realities are. But but they can't just kind of sit there as realities. They need to actually become uh, driving mentalities in your marriage. Okay, this is the reality. And so this is now how I, how we think. And these things drive decisions and actions and thoughts and, and and whatever we're doing in our marriage. These are driving mentalities. Four realities that should become driving mentalities. Here's the first one from these verses. You are compatible, actually. Look at verse 6. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus just cited the very first chapter of the Bible. That was Genesis 1.27 that he was referencing. And here's what, here's what sometimes happens, uh, either verbally or in our hearts, things like this. Oh, he's such a man. He's so frustrating. Oh my goodness, she is such a woman. She's driving me crazy. I can't do this anymore. We are incompatible. And yet in the very beginning, God tells us that he created one man and he created one woman and he brought them together in marriage. And actually, I think if we were to spend much time there in Genesis 1, here we have God's beautiful, perfect plan to take a male and a female and it's beyond even just that they are compatible. But even in, in, in complementary to one another, God in many ways made the whole human race were dependent on one another. He literally made them for each other to bring him glory. This is God's plan, and it's good. You and your spouse are compatible. That's really not the problem. Jesus already stated what the problem is. What did he say it was? He said it's, it's not a, a, a compatibility issue. It's a hardness of heart issue. Your hardness of heart, your spouse's hardness of heart, both of your hardness of heart, um, that's what's not compatible, actually, with anything. Our sin is not compatible with anything in God's world and in God's design and God's plan. You are compatible. And a second marriage reality from the garden, you are each other's highest relational commitment. Look at verses 7 and 8. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus is now quoting from the second chapter of the Bible. He's now referring back to Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 24. And of course, this is the well-known leave and cleave verse. But God is, gives husbands and wives here a very specific command about how their relationship with their parents should change once they get married. But I think we can just see that specific command and fail sometimes to realize that actually uh, God is laying down a, a much, much bigger principle. Namely, that you and your spouse have no higher earthly relational commitment than the one that you have to each other. You each have your relationship to, to the Lord, to Jesus Christ, to God, and of course that is supreme. There is no relationship above that one. But right below that, you have no higher earthly relationship. And God is emphasizing in these words here, uh, that the marriage relationship is to be the priority over all other human relationships. Jesus is laying down a priority issue, a priority matter. And here's what it would mean. It would mean that your relationship and your commitment with each other is far higher than your relationship and your commitment to your parents. That's the specific one that he highlights. Your relationship and your commitment with each other is far higher than your relationship and your commitment to your friends. Your relationship and commitment with each other is far higher than your relationship and commitment to your employer and to your job. Your relationship and commitment with each other is higher than your relationship and your commitment with your children. 
you and your spouse have no higher earthly relationship commitment than the one that you have to each other. Jesus is very clear on this, and he's going all the way back to the very beginning. You are to be cleaving to or holding on to each other. And, and, and in that language, we also see this idea of commitment. And this is so beautiful because commitment and God's plan just naturally generates so many beautiful things. Things like love and trust, loyalty and security. It's a key part of the basis for establishing marital intimacy It's a promise to accept full responsibility in the committed relationship regardless of what problems arise, whether those problems be uh, conflict or sin or or just living under the weight of curse in life and health problems and whatever else comes up and job struggles, financial struggles, whatever it is, we're committed to each other and we have no higher earthly relationship. Commitment and communication and conflict resolution go hand in hand. You are each other's highest relational commitment. And so some maybe just kind of probing questions to get all of us thinking. Are you committed to your spouse? And are you demonstrating that? And it, uh, we could all say, well, yes, of course, right? But it's one thing to say something. It's one thing to like give the, the blanket answer. But are you demonstrating that? And on the flip side, is your spouse 100% sure that you are committed to them? Here's a a probing question for you. Who do you belong to first? Your spouse or your boss? Your career? Your job? And maybe to answer that question, how would the decisions of your everyday life answer it? Because... Here could be what's going on. Some of you could very well be throwing your marriages away for your career. And that's not God's blueprint for your life. And very quickly, uh, the husband or the wife, I mean, they're no doubt doing something so important. Saving the world, fixing that problem, being the superhero at work. To the neglect of their spouse. Oh yeah, it's great. Whatever you're doing, it's awesome. But things are out of line. And God says that from the very beginning of time, that was never the blueprint. You have no higher earthly relationship than your spouse. Your boss, he doesn't rise above that. Your friends, they're not above that. Your kids, they're not above that. Also, who do you belong to first? Your spouse or your kids? And how would the decisions of your everyday life answer that question? And again, some of you may be uh, putting your kids before your spouse. And that's not God's blueprint for your marriage. And um, I think this happens all the time. And, you know, kids are pretty demanding, right? I mean, they need a lot. And so it's very easy for all the time and attention and energy of the home to go towards the kids. And meanwhile, that, that, that becomes the primary driving relationship in the home. Just a a question for you. Do you trust that God's blueprint is best and that it's actually worth totally rearranging your life for and making very hard decisions in everyday life so that you can keep your main earthly relationship the top one? A third marriage reality from the garden. 
You are one, God says. Look at verses 7 and 8. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Uh, You are one, God says. Jesus states oneness actually as a fact of marriage. On the one hand, he says to be one, and on the other hand, he says you are one. You and your spouse are one. It's an ontological reality. And this is, uh, as you know, often depicted in wedding ceremonies by the lighting of a unity candle. Uh, The man and a woman each take their separate candles and light a new one together. There were two flames, and now there's one larger one, a single flame. It's easy to think of this oneness or union um, as two distinct, maybe you thought of it like Lego blocks pressed together snap neatly and tidily together and and could just as easily be pulled apart in a neat and tidy fashion. But that type of image very much contradicts what we read in verse 8. They are no longer two. Okay, so you think of two, they're, they're actually not two anymore. They are one, one flesh. And the oneness is so thorough that a neat and tidy break is absolutely impossible. And many of you know the exact pain I speak of when, when there was one and now this shattering of the one. God says that you are one and that oneness is meant to be lived out in the practicalities of everyday life. Things like oneness of mind and thought and conversation, oneness of a direction and goal and purpose, oneness of body and sexual intimacy. Uh, One person said marriage is a total commitment and a total sharing of the total person with another person until death. And of course, living that oneness out is not always easy because there's tons of hardness of heart. Every single one of us has that. And so it takes a lot of work as anyone who's ever been married knows. And as I mentioned, hardness of heart is always part of the equation. Ever since Genesis 3, there has been sin in every single marriage. But if you commit yourself to God's blueprint, God's still saying here in the New Testament, you can have an awesome marriage. If you'll follow God's blueprint blueprint from the beginning of time, you can have an awesome marriage that can grow and become stronger and better and better and better, no matter what's in the rearview mirror. The hardness of the human heart is the greatest threat to every marriage union ever made. So I think we should all take special note of this fourth marriage reality from the garden. And I'm going to word it really simple, practical terms. You are fighters. You fight. I know. We love to. (laughs) We do it all the time. No, not against each other, but for your marriage. God says that he has joined you together. And so you take up arms against whatever would threaten to rip your marriage apart. And you fight it. Look at verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And big principle here, you fight for your marriage. And also anybody else's marriage? You don't want to wreck it. You don't want to get in the middle of it. You don't want to do anything to hurt it. 
But Jesus seems, to, there, there seems to be kind of an underlying problem that God is getting at with, with this phrase there in verse 9. What God has joined together, don't let anyone separate. If given the chance, some of the people around you will work intentionally or unintentionally to rip your marriage apart. They could be your parents who don't approve of something or who are way, way, way too involved in your personal affairs. It could be your young or adult children. It could be stepchildren, biological children, you name it, but who might try to squeeze in between you as husband and wife, as mom and dad, and pitch you against each other. Or who may just simply be hard to parent, making it very hard for you to get on the same page and work together and agree. It could be your friends who always want more time or uh, get too pushy or, or bash your spouse. I mean, this is a common thing. A woman has a friend, a man has a friend, and, and that friend just says all kinds of terrible things about the spouse and, and just stirs the pot. It could be your boss who thinks that he owns your soul and literally wants every moment that you have and keeps asking and keeps demanding for more. God calls you to remember that you have no higher earthly relationship than your one to each other. And so you must fight for your marriage. Verse 9 implies that people will threaten your marriage, maybe not even in any kind of ill will. Here's a simple fact for you, though. The person of greatest threat to your marriage is not somebody else. It's actually not your boss. It's not your kids. It's not your wife's friend or your friend. It's more than likely you, you and your spouse. Think about it. I mean, you, you guys are the ones on the inside of this thing, right? You can do more damage than anyone. And God is calling you, husband and wife, to wage war against your sin, to wage war against your hardness of heart. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is talking far more I mean, the, the Pharisees, they say, let's talk divorce and remarriage. And Jesus is like, how about we talk marriage? Any marriage, every marriage. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Fight for your marriage, cultivate it, fight your own sin. Put to death your hardness of heart. Because God intends for your marriage to be lifelong, you need to embrace God's plan for it. And that means fighting your sin. That means this is about you first in the sense of, okay, I, I've got to walk with God. I have to fight my sin and, and, and move towards Christ. Uh, Rodrigo mentioned the, the verse from Matthew 7, the log spec principle, and we're so quick to be like, you know what? The, my spouse needs to do this. They need to do that. The reason we have struggles is because of them. And God always just says, well, why don't you turn around? Why don't you look in the mirror at you first? And fight your own sin and hardness of heart. And be willing to do the hard things. I, I mean like the really hard things. I think of work as an example. And all the way back in the garden after the fall, we see that, that a man's relationship, a, a husband's and wife's relationship is always going to be in tension with the ground. The ground is always going to be pulling the man away, so to speak. The ground is always going to be calling. Work is always going to be calling. And there's going to be this constant tension that will never quite be resolved until Christ returns. But you can look at life situation and go, okay, how in my current situation can I, 
Can I try to keep my priorities in line? And we all need God's help for that. And sometimes that means making very, very hard decisions. Back in verse 2, the Pharisees asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And the overarching answer that Jesus gives without getting into any of the unique exceptions is this. No, divorce is not lawful in God's eyes. And so that brings us to a third and final way to follow Jesus in your home. Verses 10 to 12. See, divorce is anything but the solution to your marriage. When the going gets tough and it seems that there's no path forward, divorce often seems like the best solution. But God says it's not. The general principle, again here, without getting into any of the exceptions, is that divorce is sinful along with any subsequent remarriage. Look at verses 10 to 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Uh, What Jesus said may have actually caught them off guard. Verse 11, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. These verses address both the husband and the wife. Jesus acknowledging that it's possible for either one to walk away from the marriage. And so I want to address both sides of the marriage as well and and start with husbands and just say, husband, don't violate God's plan. Instead, do your very best to follow God's blueprint. Okay, what's the answer to this? What's the struggle to our conflict? What, what is the answer here? Well, it's all the way back in the garden. That's where the answer's at. God's blueprint. Commit yourself to that. And wife, don't violate God's plan. Instead, do your very best to follow God's blueprint. I'm in, and I'm committed. No matter how challenging this is, no matter how hard this is, I'm going to pick up God's blueprint, and I'm going to follow it. According to verse 5, the underlying issue that would lead to a divorce is hardness of heart. And divorce is essentially, if you follow Jesus' logic here, divorce is essentially trying to deal with sin with more sin. We've got a sin problem, so let's deal with that with sin by getting a divorce. God gives a better solution, and that's to deal with the hardness of heart, to go all the way down to the root issue. The heart. How do we do that? Well, through the saving and sanctifying work of Jesus Christ, that's the road forward. The gospel is the road forward. Discipleship is the road forward. Jesus must live and move and work in your marriage. And so I want to ask you, is he the solution? Are you thinking of him as the solution? And are you running to him and his word as the answer? I mentioned at the very beginning that Jesus is laying down this massive principle that discipleship always hits home. If you're finding this hard, following Jesus in your marriage, remember that following Jesus actually means uh, death. Jesus is saying, follow me as he marches towards a cross. The gospel is the only answer here. And maybe your marriage is a mess because, frankly, you're all on your own and Jesus isn't there in your marriage to help. If we just back up to God's plan, we see his blueprint in Genesis, the very opening chapters, and yet right after that we see sin. And sin has wrecked all kinds of things. It's in our hearts. It's in our marriages. And so the answer that we're looking for must deal with sin. 
And ultimately, that answer comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is headed towards the cross. Why? To deal with sin. And to die for your sin, to die for mine, to pay the price for it. And to satisfy God's judgment, God's just wrath and anger over your sin and over my sin. And so that's where it all has to start. It has to start with the gospel of you taking God's free gift of salvation. sinner and I need you to make me a new creation and so God's handed you a free gift he said I'll cleanse you I'll pay for your sins but you have to cry out to me and say God save me cleanse me wash me I'm looking to Jesus to do that for me and God says if anyone anyone is in Christ he's a new creation and all of a sudden you have uh, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you to help you fight your hardness of heart and to change and be transformed to look more like Jesus God intends for your marriage to be lifelong. And so you need to see divorce as anything but the solution to your marriage. I just, just a small encouragement. I'd encourage you, don't ever let divorce be the, enter the vocabulary of your marriage. Uh, just from the outset. I mean, you get engaged or whatever, or you're into your marriage. No, that, that's not a word in our marriage. Because that's not a biblical option. So that's, that's like off the table. It's never part of the vo- vocabulary of our marriage. And if you sit here today and and you need help, um, I would love to help you. I know that in our church, we have marriage problems. Um, I know that in my own marriage, we have marriage problems because we all have hardness of heart. And so if you need help, you want help, I'd love to help you. And there are people in this room who can probably help you as well and may have a, a past they could tell you about and then a story of God's grace and God is like that. We're always people who move forward by the grace of God. Following Jesus hits home. And because God intends for your marriage to be lifelong, you need to commit to that. And so why don't we bow at this time and uh, let's go to the Lord. And I want to encourage you here to uh, just pray however God may be leading you. And maybe you need to make things right with the Lord or your spouse. Or maybe you need to proactively seek help. But uh, you pray to God however he may be leading you and, and maybe you want to cry out and just say, God, I, I need you to save me. I need Jesus in my marriage. I need Jesus in my life and he's not. And you just want to cry out, Jesus, would you save me from my sins and make me your own? Uh, you pray and I'll, I'll close this here in a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
your incredible design for marriage. And we affirm that it is good, that it is right, uh, that it is healthy, and that it, it comes from a good God who is all wise and there to help us. And so we just thank you for your good plan and we cry out to you and we ask for your help. We ask for your grace to follow it, to pursue it, uh, for the elements of, of your plan from the garden to be uh, become mentalities that drive us forward in our marriage, the things that, that we anchor our marriage to, our marriages to. God, we acknowledge that we are people with immense amounts of hardness of heart. Which of us could say that we don't have that? Which of us could say that in our marriages it does not create huge problems? And God, that, that's all of us. We are sinful. And so we cry out to you and we ask for your forgiveness for the ways that we have sinned in our homes the ways that we have sinned against our spouses, the way that we have sinned in our patterns of thinking, we ask for you to forgive us. And we ask for your help. We ask that you would strengthen our marriages and build them. And we even pray that our church family would be a place of grace and help for one another. Lord, there are stories of of sin in our past. There are stories of brokenness. There are stories of healing and help and you moving us forward. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the power of the gospel. And I just pr pray um, for our church, God, that you would help us to be a place where we can uh, be open and honest with one another and, and we can struggle in community and receive the help that you would have us to get from the body because we all need it. And God, we pray that you would Protect us from driving our struggles, any of them, and our sin struggles, whether they be in our marriages or elsewhere, from driving those things underground, but that we would just humbly uh, drag them out into the light and the help of your word and of the body and that you would give us your grace. And God, thank you so much uh, for how much you love us. Thank you that, that you created this very good thing called marriage uh, for our good, for our benefit, for our joy and delight. And God, you are a good God. And so we give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen.